This is Take Care, a health and wellness show produced by WRVO Public Media. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Catherine Loper. We turn to an author, activist, and expert on weight-based discrimination and body image. Virgie Tovar is author of You Have the Right to Remain Fat. She's also developed an online community and discussion around the hashtag Lose Hate, Not Weight. Welcome to Take Care. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. Can you describe what you mean by weight discrimination and how and in what ways are people discriminated against because of their weight? Well, I mean, we can start with some of the legislative basic reality of what it means to be a higher weight person in the United States. So right now in 49 out of 50 states, it is completely legal to discriminate on the basis of weight. Statistics and studies have shown us that employers have weight-based bias. So they believe higher weight candidates are less likely to have leadership potential. We know that for women who are plus size, they earn 9000 to $19,000 less per year than their thin counterparts. So that's kind of what it looks like on one level. Fat phobia itself is a form of discrimination. A lot of people don't realize that it's discrimination or bigotry because we are used to understanding the issue of weight from a health lens. But the reality is when you look at the ways, like the lived reality of fat phobia, it matches all the criteria of any other form of discrimination. So that's kind of the basics of what we're looking at. Those statistics are really interesting, and I think ones that most people haven't heard. Do you think the discrimination is more so for women than men? Yes, absolutely. And I think that there is a good amount of data that would suggest that. Essentially, right, like women are much more likely to be judged based on their body. Also, women are more likely to experience body dissatisfaction. These are gendered issues. There's so much sociology and psychology and gender studies I could go into. But the short answer is yes, there's lots of reasons why. And as you mentioned, this discrimination or this perceived notion and the judging leads to a lot of impacts on body image and sense of self and shame. Can you describe a little bit about how one leads to the other? So if you're a higher weight person, you experience fat phobia, most likely. And fat phobia has multiple dimensions. The first is the intrapersonal dimension, which is how you feel about yourself. If you're a higher weight person, and even if you're not, you've likely been exposed to the idea that thinner is always better. And this leads to a sense that you are never good enough. There's the interpersonal dimension, which is between people, and fat phobia shows up in ways like dating discrimination. So certainly there's a bias against higher weight people within the dating realm. This shows up, as I was mentioning earlier, in employment discrimination, so the way that employers see the potential of plus-size candidates. And the third dimension is institutional. This has to do with the structures that are all around us. There's so many, and they're so overwhelmingly a part of our lives that sometimes it's hard to even see how that dimension manifests. But it looks like the subtle messaging about who belongs in what spaces. So for instance, the size of seats in restaurants, the size of seats in 
classrooms and as well as airplanes. And then another institutional dimension that people often don't know about is things like the weight testing of medication. So most medication is not tested for efficacy above a certain weight. And so this means that we don't exactly know how effective medication is for higher weight people. And that's also a form of discrimination. So that's kind of some of the lived reality of what that looks like. The impact of that is something called minority stress. Minority stress is kind of the chronic heightened sense of hypervigilance and stress that comes along with the sense that you don't belong, the sense that people have hostility towards you, and the lived reality of people actually actively perhaps verbally abusing you, calling you names, for instance. And what that does is it creates stress hormone release. This leads to heightened blood pressure. This leads to the suppression of the immune system. And on a mental health basis, this manifests as depression, anxiety, and a sense of isolation. And like other forms of discrimination, American children aren't born thinking this way. What does the research show us about when this starts manifesting among children? So research is pretty clear that it happens around the age of five years old, which is, I don't think at all coincidentally, in line with when children in the U.S. begin kindergarten. I was also interested in what you've learned about how weight and body image impact one's gender identity. Yeah, I mean, this was my research interest when I was in grad school. And, you know, to speak from a personal perspective, growing up as a fat girl, I had a lot of confusion around my gender. I knew, I mean, I was assigned female at birth. I knew that I was a girl, but I didn't have any of the social cues that indicated that I was a girl. And that's the thing about gender, right? There's sort of, you know, in our culture, there's a sort of understanding that gender is tied to biology, though obviously there's plenty of critique to be had about that. But the other component of gender is that it's consistently constructed through social interactions. So what I was seeing all around me and getting messages around from television and movies was that girls were supposed to be small. They were treated like they were dainty flowers. Boys treated them in a specific way, often with a tinge of romantic interest. And I didn't have any of that. Boys were very aggressive with me. They often treated me more like sort of another boy. Not quite, though. You know, I wasn't exactly a friend, but I wasn't treated like a dainty flower. I was not regarded with romantic interest. I think certainly to go back to one of the institutional sides of fat phobia, I did not have access to clothing that was in my size. So, you know, I would go to the girls department, which is theoretically the department where I'm supposed to be able to find clothing, and I can't find anything. And this sends a message about like, well, what am I then? You know, (laughs) that was my childhood as I went into grad school and got interested in studying this topic from a more, you know, large perspective or like a culture-wide perspective. I interviewed a small sample of fat women, and I found that a lot of them had the same experience, that they sort of felt a little bit like they were straddling a line between femininity and masculinity. And certainly, right, like we live in a culture in which femininity is, you know, the smaller you are, the more feminine you are considered to be. And so the corollary of that, of course, is the larger you are, the further you are from ideal femininity. And I think it manifested, certainly for me and the participants I talked to in really interesting ways, where in adulthood, my participants sort of went one of two ways. One was asserting kind of a hyperbolic femininity, a lot of dresses, a lot of makeup, nails, high heels, really amazing hairdos. So it was a very assertive, almost 
almost aggressive femininity that kind of was quite performative. And then a few participants sort of went the other way and leaned into masculinity and found that they were more comfortable kind of wearing like more masculine clothes and not wearing makeup. For the people who were queer, this was a really useful strategy in dating, they found, because like masculinity was something that was more prized in a larger body. You've taken your personal experience and it's led you to all this research, which I just find very interesting. And you've now taken this to the next level as an activist into spreading the message of lose hate, not wait. Can you describe that a little Yeah, I mean, lose, hate, not wait is, it's like my tagline. It's my rallying cry. You know, I think for a lot of people, I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of people who have been chronic dieters, have come through disordered eating. And what I've found again and again and again is that when people say, I want to lose weight, they often mean, I want love, I want respect, I want dignity, I want romantic partnership. (laughs) You know, I want things that every single human wants. And we as a culture, especially if you're a higher weight person, have been taught that thinness is tied to the acquisition of those things. The reality is that, you know, weight loss does not give us those things. So it's important to recognize that dieting for a lot of people is deeply symbolic. I mean, it's deeply symbolic of sort of the ways in which we as individuals attempt to meet society standards in hopes that we can get things that all of us need. And so Lose Hate Not Weight is really about calling attention to that. It is not weight that needs to be lost, but the ideology that we are not good enough as we are. And a lot of people who struggle with weight and that idea of that they need to lose weight find themselves putting off things in their life. Tell us about that. One thing that people don't realize is that dieting, you know, fat phobia creates a high level of disassociation. It creates a lot of thinking that's very future oriented. And, you know, it creates a reality in which, again, like you were saying, the delay of important moments, you know, like I will wear that bathing suit when I am thinner. I will go on the vacation when I am thinner. I will fall in love when I am thinner. I will take photographs of myself when I am this weight. And I think what ends up happening is the goalpost never stays in one place, right? So what people think that they're doing when they are engaging in dieting behavior is that they think that they are engaging in self-improvement behavior. But what the data shows is that they are engaging in behavior that is likely to lead to anxiety, depression, isolation, et cetera. So that delay of important moments is a big part of not only that intrapersonal component of fat phobia, but I think also that sort of interpersonal component, I mean, as well as institutional for sure. There's a phrase that talks about thinking positively about your weight. Can you tell us about this and how it's different from other movements in self-acceptance? Yeah, I was introduced to fat positivity officially in my late 20s, and it really blew my mind. The idea that I could just be a fat person and actually have no problem with being fat, right? Like make no attempts to diet, make no attempts to reduce my weight and just decide that I'm going to live my life unapologetically on my terms as well as I can. Insofar as society doesn't really allow me to do this exactly, but finding strategies where I can create the life that I want on my terms at my size. I think that certainly movements for self-acceptance are, I think everyone benefits from the concept of self-acceptance and self-love. I think what sets fat positivity 
apart is that it's specifically looking at a group of people who are highly discriminated against and reviled in our culture and sort of flips the script completely and says, you actually don't have to attempt to change your weight. You're actually completely fine. You're higher weight body and you have the right to love, respect and dignity at your size regardless of how much you weigh or what your health status is. And I think that there's something really, really powerful about that. Here's where I think the limitations of the current sort of self-acceptance rhetoric goes. There is a little bit of a tacit weight limit. There is a little bit of a tacit health limit. So it's like, okay, well, sure, you should accept yourself, but maybe if you're a higher weight, maybe you shouldn't accept yourself and you should probably do something about that. And I think that what, in my opinion, fat positivity does is it knocks down those tacit walls and it says, no, this is a universal human truth. Higher weight people, as well as all kinds of marginalized people, have the right to live a life with dignity and to thrive however they are in the body they have. Do you feel like the negative image of higher weight people is changing at all with a new generation? And there are more public figures who are speaking out who aren't a size two. And do you see some positive momentum in this direction? Absolutely. And I think it's important to recognize that the root of this is it's really grassroots activism and fat people, specifically on social media, who really stepped out into the limelight, took high risks in order to create authorship to create an alternative vision for representation. And now we see kind of the ripple effect of that as it goes from this grassroots on up toward the highest echelons, if you will, of like mass media. You think of somebody like Lizzo. Certainly there have been plus size black women who were public figures before Lizzo. But I do not think that you have seen someone of Lizzo's size representing her body with this joy and freedom. And I don't know, like, unapologetic nature. I think that's really incredible. And I think that very much comes from from fat positivity. And absolutely, I think that this augurs, I think figures like her, as well as a number of others, augur a really bright future for fat people. So if you had to leave people with one message about how to propel forward a positive image about this issue, what would you leave them with? I think I would leave them with two things, actually. It's very, very important to understand that fat phobia is not about health. It's not about improvement. It is about discrimination and bigotry, and it needs to end because, my second point, every single person deserves to live a life free from bigotry, regardless of size or health status. Well, we really appreciate you joining us and enlightening us on this topic. Thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you.